Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. While the rest of us were hunkered down at home, Mary Roach, America's funniest science writer and already a two-time guest at Inquiring Minds, was writing a book about her two-year journey around the world, during which she encountered bear managers and danger tree faller blasters and human-elephant conflict specialists. People whose professions involve animals or other ways in which nature breaks laws made for humans. Her new book is just out. It's called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. And we've had her on Inquiring Minds in the past on episode 31, talking about her book Gulp, (laughs) Adventures Through the Elementary Canal. And if you want to hear me giggle incessantly, go back and re-listen. And also on episode 138, where we talked about her book, Grunt, about the curious science of humans at war. Mary Roach, it is such a pleasure to welcome you back to Inquiring Minds. Oh, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me back. It's always so much fun. So, of course, your book has me chuckling all the way through. But one of the things that kind of really kind of got me to to sit up and think uh, in a way that I hadn't before, I mean, a lot of it does, but even in the way that these sort of labels are written, it's kind of funny, is how you describe the people that you profile and the kinds of organizations they work for and what an oxymoron it is. So tell us about, you know, organizations like the fish and game and wildlife and, and you know, why it's ironic. Well, that goes back to the uh, the dawn of conservation in this country. And, and conservation did not start out as like, let us cons- conserve nature as a place of beauty for us to enjoy, to stroll, to birdwatch. Let us conserve it for its own intrinsic beauty and value. It started out, conservation that is, as we've got to set aside some wilderness if we want to keep hunting. <laughs> we, need, <laughs> we can't turn everything into agriculture. We've got to have some things to hunt and some places to hunt in. So the result is that we have a lot of beautiful natural areas, and some of them allow, do allow hunting. 
But that it is it just that is the oxymoron. That is, and to this day, the people who manage wildlife in this country are fish and game, fish and wildlife. The same, you know, the same those same agencies that issue hunting licenses and fishing stock. They deal with you know stocking lakes, and so they they their their core is still hunting and fishing, but they are also the managers of our natural resources, and so that is an, an interesting and lingering kind of surreal juxtaposition. Yeah. And it kind of, you know, it made me realize that there's this group of people who, I mean, are they scientists? Are they rangers? Are they government, you know, employees? It's like this kind of netherworld between people that are really interested in learning and and maintaining and, you know, keeping our, our wildlife, I guess, wild, but not too wild, but also in managing it, which is different from, as you say, like conservation biologists to, you know, studies the, the biology of these things. Yeah. Right. Well, often, People in these agencies are people who, uh, ma- who they were wildlife biologists by training. That was their major. But you come out of school with a wildlife biology degree, and and one of the job opportunities for you, and there are not necessarily that many of them out there, is in um, wildlife management and in wildlife human conflict. So they, they, they do do research, particularly wa- human wildlife conflict, and some of that is the National Wildlife Research Center has a a lot of wildlife biologists who are researchers who sort of are specifically looking at you know solutions for and because the NWRC is under the auspices of the USDA, they're often looking at how do we deal with these animals that are decimating crops and and how do we deal with the millions of blackbirds that fly over the place where we grow sunflower seed <laughs> and like how do we keep birds from eating bird seed? So they they are looking specifically at these challenges, but they did, you know, they do come from a wildlife biology background very often. Yeah. And then, and it seems like they have, at least the ones that you describe, they have a kind of this, this tortured relationship with the wildlife. Like on the one hand, they seem to really want to protect the wildlife and preserve it. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of the story you tell about the bears in Aspen, and how, you know, the, 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 the people that are in charge, the bear managers, if you will, get really upset when they have to put down a bear. And yet there are times when that is a big part of their job. Um, so I wonder, if, yeah, tell us a little bit about like that, this kind of weird position that they are put in where, you know, their whole job is to, I mean, I don't know, is, is their job to protect the humans or to protect the bears? But then also, you know, there's this other side of it. Well, both. Both. That's why it's such a tough job. They are trying to to protect animals. I mean, they they are trying to deal with these problems so that the local person doesn't take matters into their own hands. In other words, just take out their shotgun or set a trap that's not humane. You know that they're if this animal is to be destroyed, let's do it in a way that is humane. But they are first and foremost their their, their goal is to maintain public safety. And when a bear gets to be a threat to public safety, which can happen pretty fast in a place like Aspen, where bears are like, you know what, those boxes in the hills have a lot of good food. They, they raid refrigerators, they break in and they and and when people complain, uh, some people won't complain because they know that the bear will be destroyed. But when they do complain, then, then the, these folks have to come out, set a trap and destroy the animal. And that is, first of all, really they do not enjoy that. That's a really hard thing. I mean, I, I'm speaking generally. I don't know. Maybe there are some who do, but the, all the ones that I spoke to 
really did, did not enjoy that part of the job. It's really hard. And they get a lot of flack also from, um, from people because there people don't want, particularly a large and very charismatic animal like a bear, people don't want that animal harmed or destroyed. And they feel like, you know, hey, you've got no right to kill that bear. I mean, it's, a, it's a, they're usually not the people with the bear in their own kitchen, but they're, they're, they're people sometimes just who hear about it and who send death threats, who harass them on the internet. I mean, it's a very, it's a hard job on so many levels. It's an emotional job and it's, it's a tough job because there's, there are not easy solutions to this. You know, you would think you just go, huh, well, just put a bear resistant garbage container out and be done with it. Who cares? But it's so complicated. I mean, I don't, we don't have to go into all the details of that in that chapter, but it is not as easy as you would think. You'd think it would be easy, but it's not. And I think even some of the same people who would be the first to say, don't kill that bear, because, you know, living in Aspen or, you know, even vacationing there, one of the reasons that they enjoy it so much is because they're so close to nature and, you know, bears are, are cute and, and wonderful animals also make decisions that directly lead to the endangerment of bears. Like one example you gave, two actually that stood out for me, was one was a simple just the the door handle that people put, you know, on their sliding doors, their French doors, there are some that are very easy for bears to open. And if you look at the codes in Aspen, the building codes, like you're not allowed to put those handles on there. Yeah, they call but them people bear start- handles. <laughs> French door, they don't call them French door handles there, they're bear handles. Because all you got to do is like, easy. push down and lean in. Even a bear can do that. And then you, you, uh, there's, I just want to like read from your book, you know, when you, when you got home, you stumbled onto an online Aspen Arbor guide to residential tree selection and planting. And among the recommended species were crab apples, oak, choke cherry, and serviceberry trees, where, which are essentially what bears feed on. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you make this funny note, like I hesitated to tell Breck, who's one of the bear managers, because his head might explode. And I'm sure it would have, because he just talks about how, like, you know, he took you up to one of these places where bears had gotten into a kitchen and all along, you know, the way there were down to where the house, you know, the entryway was, were these chokecherry trees or serviceberry trees. And he was just saying like, this is just, this is bear food. Right. We moved in there. Yeah. And we were in, we were walking through downtown Aspen trying to find an affordable lunch. And he goes, he stops. He's like, look at this, look at this. And I'm like, like, what? It's a small ornamental tree. He's like, these are crab apple trees. They planted crab apple trees in downtown Aspen. I mean, like crab apples, they, when they're in fruit or they're fruiting, if I'm saying that right, they're just, just clusters. Of, they're almost like clusters of grapes and the bears just come up and just mouth them off the branches. It's like, yeah, yeah they're pretty. In the spring, there's pretty pink blossoms. Yes. But don't you think that was probably not the best idea? Yeah. I mean, not if you want to keep bears out of downtown Aspen, right? where they might stumble upon, you know, a, a not so effective garbage bin, you know, bear safe garbage bin that you know just opened up by a bear. You know, that that's sort of the the ways in which the decisions that people who, you know, if you asked them would say they value the lives of bears, but the decisions they make, you know, directly endanger the bears. And there are a lot of those kinds of examples in your book. And I, I wondered if you can talk a little bit about sort of where the breakdown is. Is it in terms of information? Is it in terms of like, well, when people have to spend money or give something up, that's where they make the decisions that err on the wrong side of human-animal interactions? Like, what what is your kind of thought on 
why so often humans make these poor decisions that increase the likelihood of human-animal conflict? What it comes down to, at least in Aspen is a, a good example, and probably plenty of other mountain communities are dealing with the same thing. I, I, you know, I don't mean to beat up on Aspen, though I guess I have, <laughs> I have been doing that. Sorry, Aspen. Um, <laughs> you know, you, when you look at the, the day-to-day reality, they're, they're just, you know, it's okay, you can have bear-resistant and, uh, dumpsters and trash containers, and that's great. You can even have laws, in, and in, you can enforce these laws, and you can find people, and that's great. But then the reality is like budget-wise, who's going to be the person who patrols? And you know, this is added work for these people who does the patrolling and who hands out the tickets. Um, the ticket, the fines can be quite steep. And like one guy said, who's the person in Aspen? He's like, I, I live in Aspen. And I want to go out to a restaurant and eat, and I'm going to go into a restaurant, and I just gave them a two thousand dollar ticket, <laughs> you know. So there's like right. things like that, or or okay, a lot of these homes up in the hills are rented out as vacation rentals. So now you have people coming in who don't know about bears, don't know about bears' habits, don't know what you're supposed to do, and also there's, there's no consequences for them. It's not their home. So they they may not care. They may someone who may tell them, "Oh, you're supposed to do this and don't leave any stuff outside on the porch, etc." They they may have been told this, but it it isn't it isn't that important to them because they don't know the consequence to the bear I'm talking about. Like that that component of the education is really important. I spoke to a woman who works in a neighboring ski resort community, uh, Snowmass, and she's known as one of the bear bitches because she does find people. She'll go into a dumpster and she'll open up the garbage and see who's, who's trash this is. Cause sometimes people share a dumpster. Okay. Well, who's responsible? Who left it open? If five restaurants are using the same dumpster, who gets the fine, who gets the ticket and, and how do you prove that? So, you know, she's pretty aggressive about all of that, but she went into restaurants cause she said, you know, this is, this is, we can talk to the restaurant owners and we can find them, but it's the people who work in the kitchen they don't know what the consequences are. So she went in and she actually gave a, uh, it was a Spanish language presentation explaining to the workers in this, this, some of these restaurants, this is what happens. These bears get habituated. They start, they get bolder, they get aggressive. Pretty soon they're going to have to be killed. They don't know that intuitively. It's like, oh, well, we have to lock this dumpster and it's a pain because there's two steps involved and we were in a hurry. So what? And so she went in and, and had this program of educating the restaurant workers, you know, the people, the chefs and the, the cleanup people and the busboys and all of them just saying, look, it's really important for this reason, the bears will die. And that was a connection that they hadn't made in their heads because they had no reason to. So that kind of education and, and also just thinking it through step by step, there's a whole chain of events and people involved when you're trying to change behavior and change these outcomes. So it's, it's, you know, plus the, the the waste management companies. You know, they've got it. You got to get them on board. You got to. They may need to retrofit their trucks to fit the bear resistant containers. They might not want to do that. The, the, so there's so many players here, and they're not communicating. And it's it's kind of a, a amazing how complicated something that should be simple really is. You know, one of the um, images from your book that has stuck with me, and I don't know, it's going to take a long time for me to forget it, is one that I think would be a really powerful message. Is I, th- I think it was Breck, Breck who talks about having to put down a sow and her cub. 
and the decision. Oh, Curtis Tesh, yeah. Oh, Cur- Curtis Tesh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, like this decision is like, which one do you put down first, right? Like, you know, do you kill the the baby in front of the mom? Do you kill the mom in front of the baby? I mean, that's just like awful to think about a person who loves these animals to have to make that choice. Yeah, we were when we were driving back from the break-in, I said, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to sort of bring that up and, and talk to him about it. And I just said, yeah, and it can't be, it can't be fun to have to put down a bear. And he's like, it's not. And then he told that story of having, you know, a, a bear and a cub, you know, the cub had been taught by the mother, you know, how to pop a door and break into a home. And so the two had to be put down, just destroyed. Let's not be euphemistic here. And yeah, and and, and like, I I was thinking on how to do it, you know, which one do I do first? So I ended up tranquilizing one so it didn't have to see the other. And God, it just killed me. I mean, for the bears, but also for him. Yeah, exactly. And and knowing that, you know, he's spending his whole life like trying to prevent this and, and, you know, in in, in a lot of ways, like a lot of his working life is spent railing against, you know, people who, who do the wrong thing. There were also a number of statistics very early in your book that were really surprising to me about bears in particular and how deadly they were. Um, so tell us a little bit about, like, you know, how likely are you to be killed by a grizzly or a black bear, which was a surprise to me. Actually, very unlikely to be killed by a grizzly or by, by any bear. I think um, this it, it, over the past decade, the number of fatalities in the United States from a bear attack have ranged from zero to three. So, uh, you know, an average of two people a year in this country are killed by bears. And let's like contrast that with dogs, uh, 12 to 15 dog attacks, fatal dog attacks per year, snakes around 15 a year. So it is, it is very uncommon. Uh, it, it gets huge coverage in the media. I don't care what's going on in the world that day, a bear attack will be headline news because it is this very just primal, horrifying, frightening thing. And the other thing with bears is the way that they kill is is not how you really want to really don't want to be killed that way. They kind of go for the face. They go, they do what they do when they themselves are fighting. They go teeth to teeth. So they're focusing on the face. So the, the injuries are are really horrific. But it's very, it's very, very, very rare. And we are not, they're not predators. They're omnivores. They will eat meat. They'll eat fish, they'll eat insects. But they're you know mostly nuts and berries. They're like old hippies. <laughs> they're not. They're not like a, a true carnivore, like a like a cat. They're they are very very rarely attacking in a predatory where they're the, the, the killing with intent. It's most often a person has food in a tent or or a cabin, and the, that person startles the bear. The bear flips out, or the person has a dog. The dog and the bear get into it, and the person tries to intervene. And the bear redirects and, and goes after the person. Or you stumble in the woods, you stumble onto a bear that's protecting a cache of food. And the bear feels like you're about to steal that decomposing moose, not realizing you're not interested in decomposing moose. So while it is a horrifying scenario, it is, it's so, so rare. Yeah, like two to three a year. Like that just it's 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 so insignificant. I mean, you can probably get struck by lightning. Yes. I mean, maybe not quite that frequently, but may, uh, maybe I don't know. I don't know what the statistics are. But I, I think, you know, it, well, I, I can't forget if it's cougar or bear, but you are more likely to be struck by lightning. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just such a such an anomaly. And yet when that does happen, we immediately assume that the animal who did it has to be found and put down or destroyed, as you as you say, we like, let's let's not mince mince words here. But, you know, you towards the end of the book, you're, you you start to wonder whether there might be a sort of a, an acceptable amount of risk that we might eventually come to where we don't have to destroy animals that destroy humans, just like we are comfortable with a certain amount of risk driving cars around, you know, and uh, we, we know that's dangerous or or with COVID-19, you know, at some point we're going to have to say, look, we're going to be OK with a certain number of people dying from COVID every year and, and living our lives. Yeah, I brought that up with uh, Stuart Breck, who's the researcher I tagged along with. He's from the National Wildlife Research Center. And I said that to him, you know, what what if we what if we just accept some risk? What if we say, okay, at a certain point, somebody probably will get killed here. But what if we let that happen? <laughs> what if we, what if we said that's a payoff that we're we're going to be comfortable with? And he said, well, I'll tell you why that's not going to happen. Um, the people, as we, you and I just were talking about, bears are managed by the government. A wild animal is a, a government agency is responsible. So if a if a if an agency knows that a bear has been repeatedly breaking into people's homes or cabins and they choose to just monitor the situation and do nothing and then eventually that bear surprises someone who gets upset, freaks the bear out and is killed. Now since they were aware of the situation and they did nothing, they're now liable. And there've been lawsuits where exactly that has happened. So liability, as it so often is in our culture, is a stumbling block there. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So it's not just bears and cougars and, you know, other animals that are sort of more obvious potential um, dangers to humans. You also talk about killer plants and trees. <laughs> I uh, do, yes. So, <laughs> yeah. So let's start with the trees, um, since, you know, a lot of us just think of trees as uh, 100% good, but they can also be murderous. Uh, so <laughs> tell us about those conditions. Yeah, the trees. Yeah. 
I should say that the reason we have the trees and the beans in the book is the, the title of the book used to be Animal, Vegetable, Criminal. But then <laughs> I had to change it because Mark Bittman put a book out in February called Animal, Vegetable, Junk, A History of Food. And I was like, God damn you, Mark <laughs> Bittman. We, had, we changed it because it, it was very close and people would think, oh, you just copied Mark Bittman. Well, fuzz is very funny. I oh, thank you, thank you. Funny. I, I just, I, you know, do people know that fuzz is a police term? I don't yeah, even. Yeah, they know oh, okay, that. Good. It's the fuzz. All right, good. <laughs> so, um, anyway, my editor is like, Mary, we need more vegetable matter. <laughs> so, <laughs> I put the the tree. I added the I added the terror beans much later because um, Jill wanted more vegetables, vegetable material in the book. But the danger trees, I wanted to include even before Mark Bittman came along, because I just, first of all, that there is something called a danger tree just cracked me up because I don't know, like you said, trees, they're peaceful and still and they sway in the breeze. They're just like, you don't think of them as killers. First of all, they're killers when they, uh, they're, uh, drop coconuts and durian fruits. There's a number of, um, tree killings that have happened globally that, uh, there are papers on which I tracked down, but what I what I ended up focusing on is there's this grove of legacy, uh, a lot of Douglas firs that are upwards of 500 years old, and a Douglas fir, uh, uh, when you're a tree, you know you kind of do everything slowly. They die very slowly over a long period of time, and somebody has to come in and figure out at what point is this dying, rotting from within tree posing a danger to the tourists who come and walk around and marvel at the beautiful trees. So they have, uh, uh, I spent time with a danger tree assessor who has been some of these Douglas firs. He's been following them for, he checks them every year. There's ways that you, he's kind of like a, a tree diagnostician. You know, he comes in and he like pounds on the, with a kind of a, like a knee hammer sort of to make, see how hollow it's sounding, to see how the rot is progressing. There's outward signs like they're called conks, these sort of fungal weird things that start sticking out of the base of the tree, which suggests that the interior is far gone and very rotten. So that's a tree, you know, he'll watch them for a while, but at a certain point they are in danger of falling over and not in a predictable way. So that makes it very dangerous for anybody who's going to try to come and make that tree less of a danger. So there's very specific techniques that are done with danger trees that have to be made less dangerous. And so then you call in the danger tree faller blaster, another job (laughs) title that I really liked a lot, the danger tree faller blaster. Faller is uh, the Canadian term for logger or lumberjack. So you, they'll have business cards that'll say, falling supervisor, <laughs> like some guy just falls over a lot. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, find that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. But it made me wonder if, if like you could ever find a statistic where palm trees with coconuts kill more people than black bears. <laughs> yes, I don't have it in my head right at the moment, but I found a paper, uh, numerous papers. You'd be surprised, Indre. There's (laughs) numerous papers on people being killed by coconuts and it does happen. And I'm going to go out on a limb, which is a dangerous thing to do on certain trees. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, yes, more people are killed. Let's say cougars. More people are killed by falling coconuts than cougars. I just made it up, but I'm going to stick to it. Yeah, I, I, I will bet you are very <laughs> correct on that. Um, you start out with your book with, some, you know, just like three pages that made me laugh for like three minutes as I read them, which was a description of how for, for uh, centuries, in fact, humans have tried to uh, sue <laughs> or otherwise punish 
animals that have broken their laws. Um, so tell us a little bit about some of these, some of the things that people have done, like say, you know, in the 1700s. Yeah, this was amazing to me. This was partly how I got into this book was that I stumbled onto this 1906 book called The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. And it talked about it from the 1500s through the 1700s, people in like, the heads of towns and the, the, the governments of communities and villages would use the legal system. When animals broke the law, they would kind of apply their the same sorts of punishments and trials that they would to a human. And this is how weird it got. This example that I use in Fuzz, this was 1659 in a province of Northern Italy where caterpillars, caterpillars were coming in and eating like lettuce, the crops, whatever the crops were, which caterpillars, that's what they do. They're voracious eaters of plants. So the town fathers put these nailed to trees near these plots of lettuce and other crops, summonses to the caterpillars saying they were to appear in court on a given day, at which point they would be assigned legal representation. (laughs) Obviously, the caterpillars did not show up in court on the appointed day, but they went kind of went through with a kind of a mock legal proceeding and they made a decision, well, we will set aside alternate land for the caterpillars and everyone will be happy. Meanwhile, the caterpillars had pupated, become butterflies, taken off. So it it, it did appear as though the town fathers had solved the problem, which was kind of the point in this case. And in many of these cases, it was sort of a way to say, we are so all-knowing and powerful and good that we can even fix things in nature. You know, Even nature is under our control and we will deal with it and you will be safe. So it was kind of a showing off, it seemed to me. But there were cases where uh, um, if somebody, there were pigs, this is, I'm not an attribute of pigs that I had been familiar with, but pigs sometimes attack small children and the pigs would be put in jail. And and this, this book is not a hoax. It is well-documented. It is long. It has appendixes with say, here's a copy of the expense report that from the guy who kept the pig in prison and had to feed it (laughs) awaiting trial. (laughs) And then the pig would be put on trial. And sometimes uh, often, uh, I don't remember pigs being, they didn't really mention a lot of pigs being released or, or, or winning their own <laughs> case. Uh, but there were people advocating for the uh, animals. And I mean, there were, there were lawyers on either side. It was a very, very bizarre way of dealing with human animal conflict, but entertaining. So one of the other um, places you go in your book is is sort of the latest technology, and and you talk about the Robird uh, a, a drone technology, and this this actually I was really interested in this because I, I directed an opera this summer, and I wanted to have a bird in it that we could control, and I looked into these things, <gasps> and they were clearly not an option; they were way outside our budget. But tell us how they're actually used, as opposed to you know just part of the set of an opera. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry that didn't work out because they're amazing. They're amazing. Robird, it's a drone falcon, but it's different from the kind of drone that has a rotary blade like a helicopter. It is powered by wings. The guy who invented this, who who's from the Netherlands, was an expert in how wings work, and he designed them to work like an actual falcon. I mean, a falcon, and, and the, the whole point of this, I should say, is to scare away, often it's gulls, but um, it could also be if you need to keep ducks away from a 
if you have a mining operation and, and you can't kill any ducks because you'll get fined, uh, sometimes they will hire falconers or a ro- robird. I mean, you can, you can hire a falconer. Either way, it's very expensive. But the robird, it's amazing. They've, and they train the pilots. Uh, they, they, they call them pilots. But they're trained in the actual motions of a falcon, the way they kind of flap, flap, dive, and then swoop back up. So they, they're they experts in how a falcon actually moves and preys on. Because falcons often uh, kill. I've seen a f- falcon, peregrine falcon, tearing apart a seabird. I mean, they're, they, they're pretty effective. They're very fast and they're uh, very aggressive. So I went to a dump, sorry, landfill. They got bothered, annoyed with me for saying dump. <laughs> like dump is a four letter word, Mary. They went to, okay, sanitary landfill where there's just <laughs> the gulls are like, it's like a blizzard of gulls. And not only are they, they drop things and they, well, they crap on the guy operating the bulldozer, but they, they make it hard to see. There's just, they can be quite a nuisance then. So the Robert people were there doing a demonstration and it was amazingly realistic. You would not know that. And, and silent, not like, not the kind of drone. Well, that was what was appealing to me is like, yeah, they're not going to sound like a drone. So that's why I want to use it in the opera. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, and they're painted realistically and they're tried, they texture them so that it has similar aerodynamic effects that a, that a feathered body would have. And they have a little, you know, inside he opened up the head and they've got the little navigation system. It's a pretty awesome contraption. And so it works? It did work. The gulls were kind of like, ooh, I don't like <laughs> this. Because, you, you know, one, the other thing that they'll tend to do is set off pyrotechnics. And that's kind of a startle response. All the gulls will take off, fly into the air, and then within a minute, they're like, yeah, okay, let's go back. <laughs> so that's very noisy for the neighbors. They don't appreciate the fireworks going off all day. And they also the gulls fly over their neighborhood and shit on their cars. And then the landfill people have to hand out car wash coupons. <laughs> so they were interested in Robert as an alternative because and, and the, the gulls were it, they definitely responded as though hey psst, there's a predator here maybe let's move on it was it de- they definitely seemed to take notes notice in a way that wasn't just the startle response which you get shooting off you know pyrotechnics firecrackers basically so yeah it was pretty uh, pretty impressive. So I want to remind our listeners that uh, Mary Roach's book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, is now available at booksellers everywhere. If you want a good laugh while you're learning really interesting things and going to places that you never imagined you'd go, uh, this is the book for you. You know, you end your book with a point that I think is really well made and well taken, that sometimes the people that we think of as the ones who are going to be, you know, conserving uh, nature and protecting nature are not the ones that make you hopeful about the future of human-animal interaction. Tell us about Roger. Sure. Um, Roger, Roger owns a feedlot, a cattle feedlot in Colorado. And I ended up at Roger's feedlot. A feedlot is a place where cattle are brought and raised for different purposes, whether it's a milk cow, a beef cow, or a breeding cow, they're given a different diet to make them, you know, leaner, fatter, whatever. Roger has huge amounts of material, plant material piled up, like the discards from brewers who make, you know, people make beer, there's sort of hops and barley, there's cracked corn everywhere. And Roger is where the National Wildlife Research Center goes when they need wild mice, because Roger Basically, although he's, his job is to feed cows, he's got an open air restaurant for mice. 
And I thought, I, I would like to talk to Roger about how he feels about mice, because well, I had to do also with stuff going on at the research center. But I thought I would hear something, a lot of anger and frustration. But Roger, you know, he's just, he's like the, just like the classic cattle feedlot kind of guy with a white cowboy hat and the boots and the tan that you know, stops at his forehead because he's always got the cowboy hat on. Like, like this is not the guy that, like, you know, raises organic chickens and names them, you know? No, 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 this is not Roger. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah. He came up, drove up to meet me uh, driving a large forklift. You know, he's just, he's a feedlot guy. So I said, you must have a horrible problem with the, with the mice. Does that bother you? Or how do you deal with that? And he said, you know, this stuff comes in, like, I don't remember how many tons. You know, this stuff gets shipped in 50 tons at a time. So if I've got mice eating 50 pounds, I don't even think I would notice that. The wind probably blows off more than that. You know, he's like, eh, I've got house cats. They deal with it. The owls, the owls eat a lot of mice. But basically, he's like, it's part of the price of doing business. You know, in the same way that shoplifting is a part of the price of having a department store, you know, you try to, you try to outsmart them. But at a certain point, you accept that there's going to be some loss. And that's okay. Yeah, I thought that was just a great way to end. Instead of like him trying to find ways to poison the mice, you kind of use this analogy. Uh, the, the, the shops don't try to poison the shoplifters. They just try to outsmart them. Right. Yeah. He was he was very laid back about it. And then, that, you know, there were these birds flying over our head. And I said, do you, um, what do you do about birds? He goes, well, you can hire people to come in and shoot at them, make a loud noise, but they're just going to fly off to the tree, wait a few minutes and come back. And he said, it's also, you know, it's seasonal. They pass through here and then they're gone. It's not really a big deal. And I was like, Roger gives me hope because he's not small organic. He's big ag. And it's just an attitude shift. And um, I just took a lot of hope from from Roger. Yeah. I mean, your whole your whole book is just so interesting with the characters that you encounter and the things that you did, you know, like just to give our listeners a bit more, like you took this course on how to like forensic wildlife, like maulings, like you know, how do you tell whether a person was mauled by a cougar versus a bear? Yeah. It must have just been so fun and interesting to journey to all these places and meet all these people. It was incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I, my whole career is just me stumbling onto some pocket of science that I never knew existed, in this case, human-wildlife conflict. There is some hard science in there, but it's just a world I didn't know was out there, which is bizarre because we all deal with wildlife in one way or another, whether it's the raccoons and skunks and possums in my backyard in the Bay Area or blackbirds eating your sunflower seed crop because, my God, it's bird seed. Of course, they're going to eat it. <laughs> so anytime that there's a world, uh, just a, a pocket of science that I've never heard of. And I get to step into and spend time with these people who are trying to figure it out and maybe make it better. That just, I get pretty fizzed about that. Mary Roach, thank you so much for coming back to Inquiring Minds. Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Indre. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale LaMaster, and Charles Blyle. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. There is more. And more.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.